Let's take the Word of God together this morning and turn to Colossians chapter number 4. Colossians chapter number 4, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 1 through 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This, of course, is the final chapter of the book of Colossians, and we'll break this up into two parts. We'll deal with verses 1 through 6 today, and then we'll deal with these closing instructions or closing admonitions uh, next Lord's Day. Colossians 4, beginning there in verses one, verse 1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. You'll notice our reading this morning, Paul proceeds with the responsibility of masters to their servants. It really is a carryover from chapter 3. It's interesting that it finds itself in chapter number 4 because really it is connected to the ending thoughts of chapter number 3. And you'll see that Paul continues to remind these masters and their servants of their responsibilities, that they are to deal with their servants with equity and kindness. Now, they ought to deal with their servants this way in a way as they expect God to deal with them. That's what Paul means by knowing that God or knowing that you have a master in heaven. So as this particular verse belongs to this preceding chapter, uh, Paul, again, he exhorts these servants also to have a proper response to their masters. And so there is this instruction about how not only should the servants uh, deal with their masters in a, uh, a proper way, but the masters should also deal with their servants in an equitable manner. And so they ought to encourage them. They ought to treat them with respect. They also, of course, ought to give them equity and fair in their wages. So we understand the levels of accountability. And we've been looking at last week and how we looked at the Christian family and we looked at husbands and wives and children and fathers and knowing that all of these things are part of the responsibilities of the Christian life or Christian living. So really, verse 2 is where Paul begins this, uh, not a new thought, but he's bringing this particular epistle, this particular letter to a conclusion by giving some very important admonitions to those at the uh, church of Colossae. And there's three really important things that he makes mention here. He makes mention of prayer. He makes mention of ministering to open doors. And he also makes mention of redeeming the time. And all of these, of course, could stand alone in a, in a message, in a sermon, uh, in a teaching about the important aspects, again, of carrying on this Christian life. But you'll notice that verse 2, uh, Paul mentions three very important uh, things regarding prayer. Uh, it's the word continue, it's the word watch, 
and with thanksgiving. So Paul gives not only these responsibilities, uh, but he gives what these prayers or how prayer should be viewed, how prayer should be treated. Uh, there's no doubt in Scripture that all that are in Christ uh, should continue in prayer. Uh, Paul, when he says continue in prayer, there is this automatic assumption that every believer prays. And so there's the assumption today that if you are in Christ Jesus today, uh, you are to continue in prayer. Uh, you are, we are praying people, and we ought to take uh, opportunity to pray every moment that we can. Now, of course, Paul, when he says to continue in prayer, he doesn't mean uh, that we can uh, or even should pray all the time. However, uh, we can live in an attitude of prayer. Uh, it will be impossible for us at some points during our life to actually pause and pray in the, in the manner in which we're used to praying. Uh, but we can have an attitude of prayer, that our minds are always on things of God. They're on the things of what God, uh, God's will and God's desire for us. And we should pray frequently about things. So this word continue really has the idea of continuing in what you're already doing. And as he speaks about these other things, uh, we see that this should be our attitude. Uh, now, again, he's not giving us some framework of how many times a day you should pray or necessarily what you should pray. But he is talking about that this should be the continual attitude of our heart. And certainly it would be a strange thing for a believer to allow a single day to, to pass without praying. Uh, it would be a, a strange thing um, to not even have time set apart to pray. So he's, he's making the assumption that they are going to continue in prayer, uh, and that's the way that they will do. Notice he says not only to continue in prayer, but to watch in the same. So there is this instruction now to watch in prayer, uh, be intentional, uh, be alert. Uh, and this, this, he's saying this in opposition to a cold, formal, careless attitude of prayer. Uh, brethren, it, it, is, it is quite possible, and I believe it does happen quite often, where we are just simply praying in a cold way. We're praying with a, some sort of formal obligation. We're praying in, in some way that really uh, has no, it, it's not being done with care. It's, it's careless. It's, it's just simply kind of coming to God in a, a very light manner and not considering uh, not taking care to what we pray, not watching for what we're praying, but it should be a time of sincere communion with God. Um, it should be something that, uh, again, it may not be three actual times a day. Um, it might not just be at exactly in the morning or exactly before you go to bed, but it ought to be a sincere communion. It ought to be a sincere time when you are praying with God, and it, is, it has your undivided attention. And oftentimes, cold, lifeless prayer is the result of our hearts being divided, our minds being divided. Uh, no doubt, um, we come from places and we all have times in our life when we're distracted. Uh, we're distracted from, from the moments and the times of prayer. And uh, if it's anything with you like it is for me, even my greatest intentions to come apart to pray seems to be distracted or easily diverted by the affairs and the concerns and the cares of the day. And yet we should be very intentional uh, in how we pray, uh, be alert. And Paul uh, wanted them to know that as well. And then notice this aspect. He says that not only should you continue and watch, 
but it should be with thanksgiving. A believer always has something to thank God for. Uh, thankful for his daily mercies. Uh, thankful for what he has done for us, not only in the past, but what he will do for us in this very day, what he will do for us in the future. Uh, so there is this thanksgiving, and thanksgiving is really uh, defined as nothing more than the sincere acknowledgement of what God has done for you. Uh, to consider, uh, really, what has God uh, done? And really, thanksgiving should be a part of every prayer. Um, there ought not be a day, a moment, a time when we pray where we're not thanking God uh, for saving our souls, especially, for giving us mercy and grace when we didn't deserve it, for showing us favor, showing us kindness, uh, being mindful of us. Uh, these are all things that, of course, the Apostle Paul was familiar with in his own prayer life. He was familiar as he wrote to other uh, churches and other people. Uh, matter of fact, when he wrote to the uh, church at Philippi, in Philippians chapter number four, uh, he says in verse six, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Be careful for nothing. He, he means don't take thought for your life. Don't be overcome with anxious care. Don't be overcome with distracting thoughts. Don't be overcome by the difficulties of this life. But he says, with prayer and supplication, pray upon every opportunity. When our minds are burdened, when our hearts are broken, when we're filled with sorrow, when our, our minds are so easily perplexed and distracted and turned every which way, prayer is this moment where we can make these requests uh, known to God. Uh, show, uh, it shows us the concern and our dependence uh, that we have upon God. So we are thankful. Paul says we ought to be thankful uh, in our prayer. And then you'll notice that Paul does something which he does frequently, and I think he does it appropriately. Uh, he prays specifically or requests prayer for himself. In verses 3 and 4, Paul requests prayer for himself and others who minister the word. Uh, Paul thought it very important to pray not only for himself and that others would pray for him, but that we should pray for all who minister the word. We should pray for all who open the sacred text, who pray, who, uh, who preach the word, who, who, who pray and proclaim it and teach it. We ought to pray for those. And he prays very specifically. And it's interesting what he says. He says, with all praying also for us. You know, sometimes we are reluctant we are reluctant, and I think it's in our humanity, I'll, I'll speak for myself, sometimes it's in my own pride that I'm reluctant to ask for prayer. I'm reluctant to ask you to pray for me, for example. I'm reluctant to say, hey, can I ask you today, this very Sunday in particular, can I ask you to pray for me today as I preach the word? I'm very reluctant to do that. Uh, that's my pride. That's my pride that is screaming out that I'm not willing to say, I need you to pray for me. And today is one of those days. Every day that we gather together, I do need you to pray for me. I need you to pray that the word would go forth. And Paul says specifically that as you pray for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance. This is a really a powerful request that Paul is asking for here. He's praying that a door of opportunity would be opened. 
He's praying that as he sends forth the word and that the word goes forth, that a door is opened. It's not the only time we see Paul use this type of language. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, he says, For a great door and effectual was opened unto me. But then I want you to hear this. And there are many adversaries. He says the doors are open and it's an effectual door. But as that door is open, there are adversaries to what is going forth. And brethren, we know for a fact that there are many, many, many that no matter the size, no matter how small the congregation is, as the word goes forth, there will be adversaries. There will be opposition to this. There'll be opposition to what we're saying. There'll be opposition to how we're saying it. Anytime even a door is opened, there will be opposition. And Paul says, I want you to pray for that. I need you to pray that God would open this door. Again, Paul very simply saying, as we pray for you, would you also pray for us? This door of utterance, the ability to speak, the opportunity to preach the gospel. Well, what, would, what was Paul asking for? What, what, when Paul says pray for us, is he praying just pray generally that all will go well with you, Paul? No, if you take Paul as a whole and you look at his letters and you look at his writings to the churches, Paul often was praying specifically. Here's Paul praying that he would have the courage to stand fast. See, it's much more than just standing and proclaiming it. It takes courage, and especially in Paul's day, it took courage to stand up and proclaim these truths. And Paul was, was praying that God would give him the ability and the courage and the boldness to, to pray. And then he says specifically what it is to speak the mystery of Christ. So Paul prays for these doors of opportunity, but he's also praying that the doors of man's heart would be opened, that their eyes would be able to see, that their ears would be able to hear. We know Paul often spoke about those who hear the gospel just with their natural given ears, but they still don't hear with the heart. What Paul is asking for here, that the door of utterance, that their heart would be opened, that they would not just hear it with their natural ears, but that they would hear it with their heart. That's what our prayer is. Our prayer is, is every time we gather here, is that the, the word would not just be heard, heard as mere words, but it would be heard with the heart. The gospel, the glorious gospel of God's grace and glory, this is the mystery he's speaking about. You realize this mystery that Paul says we're to speak the mystery of is a mystery that can only be revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. No matter how well or unwell I explain it to you today, without the power of God, it will be of none effect. The power of God must accompany this glorious grace that goes forth. It is the power of God's Spirit. Because what happens is if the Holy Spirit of God doesn't work, men and women, boys and girls just remain seated in darkness even after they hear it. And Paul says, pray that these doors would be opened, 
Notice he, he doesn't add this as a means of pity, but he notices, he mentions again his current condition for which I am also in bonds. Remember, Paul knew what it was to be in bondage, not only physically in prison cells, but even in bondage and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and this glorious gospel. Paul is praying that the lips that he has would be opened for the glory of God. Pray that God would give me the words to say, the ability to say them, the wisdom to do it for his glory. Paul wanted to preach the gospel faithfully and boldly and with as clear a speech as he possibly could. Again, not because God's relying on Paul, but because Paul understood the great responsibility that he had. When he says there in verse four, for which I am in bonds that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Pray that I would speak as I should. One thing maybe often Paul would write with such power from prison. You know what Paul would have been prone to? Discouragement. Paul even could be asking, pray that I don't get discouraged in my bonds. Pray that I don't lose heart. You know, sometimes we can hold the Apostle Paul up so high, we think, boy, this man was steadfast and sure. He, he, he endured these, these stonings and was nearly left for dead. This man was relentlessly faithful. He was a human. He was just as prone to discouragement and despondency of heart and sorrow as every one of you and myself. You see, there is nobody in their own strength and their own power can proclaim such a glorious mystery who can live the Christian life who is not subject or prone to discouragement. He says that I would, I would speak as I ought to speak. I would pray as I ought to pray that I would be able to make known the mystery of this glory of Christ. What must it have been like when you got a letter from the Apostle Paul in these churches where Paul was saying, I am praying for you, your pastors, your elders, and your congregation. Imagine what that must have been like. Well, think about what it must have been like if someone had corresponded with Paul and say, Paul, we want you to know we're praying for you. We're praying for you as you endure these things, as you are chained in some cases, chained to another individual that you would manifest in your bonds and speak the mystery of Christ properly and clearly. You know, Paul didn't miss an opportunity to preach. If you chain a jailer to him, he would just witness to him. But he needed prayer. Again, you don't see Paul asking it for it a lot, but he certainly does when he makes mention of praying for him. I think we certainly should take notice of that, of what Paul was trying to teach the church at Colossae. I do not know of a single believer, whether it is a pastor, elder, 
members of a congregation, serves as a deacon. I don't know any single person who's a Christian that doesn't need the prayers of other brethren. I've never met one. Now, I've met some, and I've been that one, who said, I don't need the prayer, I got it. No, we all need it. What we don't understand about even this beautiful thing God calls the church, we don't understand how badly we need one another. We really don't. When you start to find out how bad you need each other is when you don't have it anymore. And you realize what this was and what this is and the beauty of it. Every single believer needs this encouragement. There is no one who can say, look, I'm the one who does all the encouraging. I don't need it. No, we all need it. We need each other. The church needs each other. Paul is all but begging the church to pray for him as he prayed for them. That these things, again, he's not praying that he would be released from prison. He's not praying that he would be removed from suffering. He's praying that he would remain faithful and that he would continue to stand. So Paul prays for those for himself and for those who minister the word. And then notice verse number five. He uses a phrase that we think often about when we read the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, maybe Psalms as well. Walk in wisdom. But notice who he says, walk in wisdom towards them that are without. To walk in wisdom is to walk in a proper manner. It's to conduct yourself towards those who do not know Christ in an appropriate manner. Those who are without are all who are unbelievers. People who are not members of the body of Christ. We often see in the Bible the Church is called the household of faith. What an expression that is. That's an interesting, if you'd like a study to study on your own, study that phrase, the household of faith, and everything that that means. Imagine not being a part of the household of faith. Imagine not having what we so easily take for granted as the church. Imagine being in this world without the household of faith. Imagine being without hope in this world and in the life to come. Paul specifically now says that not only would I walk in wisdom towards those who are without, but that you would walk in wisdom. Walk properly towards those who are not part of the household of faith. You realize that our accountability and our responsibility to speak the mystery of Christ and to speak about Christ doesn't just connect us with people who are in the household of faith. It it regulates our behavior to those who are without. Do you realize how you treat the unsaved world matters? How you treat lost people matters? How you conduct yourself, how you behave around them, it matters. And Paul is very clearly saying, listen, how do you communicate? Behave wisely. Why? So that the gospel isn't misunderstood or so that the gospel's not blasphemed as being some sort of self-help philosophical nonsense. Listen, it matters how you talk to lost people. It matters how you conduct yourself at work when you're surrounded by people who do not know Christ. It matters how you respond to them. And he's saying walk in wisdom towards them that are without 
Do everything you can in your conversation and conduct with unbelievers. Listen, I'm going to say this, and I'm saying it for myself. They may not agree with us, but we should give them reasons to respect us. We should be respectable people. We should be people that have gained respect because our conduct does not give a false view of what the gospel really is or what the gospel has really done. If the gospel has redeemed our souls, then shouldn't our life and our conduct and our conversation match that? They may not agree with our stance. They may not agree with our position on things. But that doesn't mean it changes the way we act towards them. You see, I think we've, we've sadly got into this place, and I, part of it, I think, is just the warring society that we're in. I mean, people are just seemingly looking for conflict. But we should conduct ourselves in a way and in a manner that brings glory and honor to our Savior. I said, what if I'm provoked? You're going to be provoked. I guarantee you, if you try to live a Christian life, you're going to be provoked. But we can still live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. We should be known in our families. We should be known in our communities and even in the places that we work. Listen, and don't lose sight of these simple things. We should be known as peaceful and honest and holy. And don't forget this one, kind. I mean, I ask myself the question every day, where is the kindness gone? Where's the kindness gone, not just in our own families, but where's the kindness gone to those who are without? And like I've said this before, sometimes we talk to the unsaved and unlost people like we're angry at them. And it's like, why would they want anything to do with that God you're screaming at them about? Be kind about it. We make assumptions that they know the things that we know scripturally. They don't have the discernment of these truths and you can't talk to them as if, well, you should know better. You wouldn't know better apart from the Holy Spirit of God, neither would I. We say, how can people live this way? Because that's what sin does, folks. That's what sin corrupts and it infects. It's a disease. And it's a disease that you and I, if we're in Christ, God, by his grace and his mercy, he's miraculously delivered us from. But don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget what you've been delivered from and that apart from the grace of God, you'd be doing the exact same things. Be kind. Be holy. Peaceful. Walk in wisdom. Proper conduct. Do everything good that you can do for them. Take every opportunity. Notice he says, redeem the time. Redeeming the time. That's connected with walking in wisdom. Right? We can, we can isolate passages and we can build messages out of them, but look, redeem, redeeming the time in direct connection to walking in wisdom. Redeem this time. Take every opportunity of doing good. Every opportunity. Do good. I don't think there's anybody who preached the gospel more boldly, more courageously, more steadfastly than Paul did. But if you really get to this underneath the surface and look at Paul's life and look at those teachings, 
You can see he's got this thread of these things running through his letters. Look at the book. Read the book of Ephesians. Read, the, read him talking about being kind and tenderhearted. And there's this, there's this thread that's running through Christianity that sometimes we forget these things that we ought to be, that part of redeeming the time in which we have, sure, you preach the gospel. We should never apologize for that. But redeem the time by taking opportunities to do good to those who are without. Speaking properly. And then verse 6, let your speech be always or always with grace. This is not just to talk about the grace of God, which by the way, talking about the grace of God for a Christian is the easiest thing you can do. Living by that same grace and demonstrating that same grace towards others is a whole other thing. Think about how easy the songs, of the hymns about grace come off of our lips. Think about how easy when we're here in this safe, warm place on a December morning, how easy it is to talk about grace with one another. But think about that outside of these walls. Think about having grace towards those who were without. Think about taking every opportunity to be honest and kind and holy. How you speak reveals what you think about the grace of God truly. I think one of the prayers of our mouth every day, again, this is just me sharing my heart with you today, is that there would be a guard on our mouth. I'm telling you, that tongue is a raging fire. And the damage that the tongue does in an instant is immeasurable. Every day, God, put a guard upon these lips that I speak with grace, that I speak with grace, that speech, that's seasoned with salt, he talks about. What do we do when we speak the truth or we speak the grace of God? Well, we speak the truth of the grace of God faithfully. We speak it sincerely. We speak the grace of God without lying, without deceit, without malice, without flattery, without exaggeration. We speak it in love. We avoid gossip. We avoid slander, whisperings, backbitings. Anything that can injure the character of another, you should refrain from it. Because once you do that, you're not speaking the grace of God anymore, right? Because the grace of God is not going to sow discord. The grace of God is not going to sow division. A lot of times we'll agree, hey, yes, I'm not going to sow discord in my church. I'm not going to sow discord in my division. I'm not, I'm not going to sow discord, gossip, or whisperings. I'm going to speak love at the church, but... Monday morning, I'm causing discord at my employee. I'm, I'm causing discord at my, at my employer's place of work. You see, speaking the grace of God is not just when we're assembled on a Sunday or a Wednesday or whatever the case is. It's speaking the grace of God everywhere. Grace to the speech, 
the simplest way I, I understand when he's talking about this seasoned with salt, there's a lot of studies you can do on this. And I'm, I'm just going to give you the very simple interpretation of this and the way that it's come to my understanding. Simply put it this way, grace is to the speech what salt is to meat. And it, some part of it, we don't understand it, but the salt and the meat, even in those days, made that meat acceptable. So when we speak with grace and season with salt, we speak those things that are for the good. We speak for the good of the ear, to bless somebody else. What he's connecting here is that your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. See, it is, it is only the heart that is filled with grace that knows how to answer that question. Right? So you don't know how to answer, how you ought to answer. Notice he says every man. You don't know that unless there's grace in your heart. You see, there's a connection there. Grace in the heart teaches you how should I answer any person? How should I respond to whatever circumstances in front of me? Very instructive here. Everything in our conduct, in our speech, should be that which is acceptable. Sometimes we have to say difficult things to people. It doesn't mean you don't speak it with grace still. You realize even when you tell somebody a very hard truth, you can still speak it with grace. He, he talks about, notice he says, let, your great, let it always be seasoned with salt, right? So there are going to be times and moments where we, we might struggle with this, but he says it should not be speech that corrupts someone else. Now, I hope we understand that every time we're asked a question, we need the grace of God and we need God's wisdom to know how to answer that question rightly. You know, we've always heard that. We've heard that old cliche and that old saying to think before you speak. It's true in a lot of ways, but I think it's even greater than that. Make sure there's grace in your heart before you speak. Make sure you're even demonstrating grace towards that person who's without as well as that person is within. Right? It should be seasoned with salt. Even when we answer questions that are objecting to what we stand for, even when we're answering questions where, again, remember what Paul was saying. Every open effectual door, there's opposition and there's adversaries. When he's talking about know how to answer every person, he's even talking about how to answer even an enemy, even an adversary, even someone who opposes you. Make sure your answer is seasoned with salt. You realize how difficult that is, right? Think about what happens when someone opposes you. What happens in your heart? What happens in your soul? You all know what it is. You start, it starts to build and build and build, and you're starting to think about, look, I can't take any more of this. I, I've, I'm going to blow it back here at this person. Your speech should be seasoned with grace. Even when adversaries and enemies oppose and object to us, we should be given a reason to that opposition, to that adversary, 
of the reason why we're hopeful. We really shouldn't be down in the mud and the mire with everything that's going on in the world. And it's easy to get dragged down there, isn't it? It's easy to get pulled down by every argument, every opposition, and every adversary. And listen, we're told that we are to have our speech seasoned with salt. But Paul ties all these thoughts together and all these things together by very clearly saying that none of these things can be done rightly without prayer. Right? Notice he started with prayer. He started with prayer and he progressed not just prayer in general, but prayer, fervent, diligent prayer that's watchful, that's alert, and the prayer with thanksgiving. And that you would pray for one another. Paul, again, as we review and bring this to a close, Paul's teaching us that we ought to pray for those who minister the word. But we also ought to pray for one another. We ought to have proper right conduct towards unbelievers. Be very careful in how we walk. Walk in wisdom in every conversation that we have. Do them good. Look, talk about Christ. Give them the gospel. But be diligent in how you use that time. Be diligent that they walk away from you that it was not your conduct that brought reproach upon the gospel. Speak grace. Speak seasoned with salt. Speech that is done and seasoned with salt is speech that doesn't corrupt. It edifies, it helps. You know, sometimes we think that all I have to do is have the answer. It's not always just about the answer. It's about answering rightly. Right? If you can't answer it with grace, you're better off not to answer it. But we should answer with grace. We should answer in these things because we as believers, those who understand these things, we have the discerning power of the Spirit. Speak the mystery of Christ. Next week, Paul, in the concluding thoughts of this letter and in this chapter, he goes on to give admonitions and exhortations and commendations of faithful servants. Again, when you come to the end of any chapter or any book of the Bible, we often have a tendency to say this is the end. There's nothing really important there. It's just a bunch of names. There are so many great lessons found in these final verses and the things that Paul talks about and things that Paul pulls out of it. So I would encourage you uh, for next week, read through that. Uh, read through those names. Uh, follow who he's talking about. Get a good scripture reference Bible and follow the path and see, oh, that's who Paul was talking about. And you go and you read the account. It'll encourage you. It'll, it'll help you. It'll edify you when you think about these things. When Paul speaks about these faithful servants uh, to the ministry that God had given him. Well, let's pray together and then we'll have our closing hymn. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. This